Welcome to the Orange Socks Podcast, where we are inspiring life despite a diagnosis. I'm your host, Dr. Gerald Nebaker. Christy and Eric noticed their daughter Ellie wasn't meeting expected milestones. And at five months old, Ellie was diagnosed with infantile spasms. Ellie is now 21 years old and has intellectual and developmental delays. But that doesn't prevent her from bringing pure happiness to her family and those that get to know her. So Christy, how old is Ellie? Ellie will be 21 in two weeks. Okay. When did you find out that Ellie had disabilities? Well, we found out pretty early on. When Ellie was three months old, we noticed that she wasn't doing new things every day like we'd seen before. She wasn't tracking us across the room. She had some odd movements she was making. We mentioned it to her pediatrician and she said, well, six months, we'll do another check and I might send you to a neurologist mm -hmm. if there's still concerns. And at five months, we thought, we don't want to wait. Something's going on. And so at five months, went to see the neurologist. It was clear from when he saw her that this was a very serious situation. She has what's called infantile spasms, okay. which is considered a medically catastrophic seizure disorder because it's highly associated with developmental disabilities and even early death. So at the point she was diagnosed at five months, we knew our journey was going a direction we hadn't anticipated. So, Eric, what were your thoughts when you found out you had a, a daughter with a significant disability? Right, so, I mean, it was a new experience. I had no relatives or anybody else that I was close to, so it was a totally out of the blue, oh my word, what is this gonna, what is this gonna be like? I mean, it was heartbreaking. We were in major grief, and there was that immediate overwhelming emotion. So it was a feeling side and thinking, I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to expect. It was a whole new road that we couldn't see ahead sure. of us very far. What were your thoughts? Well, I had a cousin with a developmental disability and, and I'd always wanted to be a nurse, even though I didn't end up being a nurse. So I was a bit more comfortable with medical issues, but it was heartbreaking. I mean, because I'd wanted children for a long time. I'd wanted a daughter specifically. And I had these dreams of, you know, going shopping together. And I knew that was likely not the way life was gonna go. Hmm. But I kind of went right into mama bear mode about, okay, so what do we need to know? <laughs> What's next on the road? So she has a seizure disorder. Yeah, Some... infantile spasms is a seizure disorder. Okay. And it's called infantile because that particular seizure type, you'll stop having that type at a fairly early age. But if it's not controlled, it moves into another seizure type. So she was having 200 plus seizures a day. Oh my. We immediately were enrolled in a study at UCLA and that was some great support to be enrolled in a study and have that level of care and oversight. But I did some research and I thought, okay, how about if we try this other thing because these medications aren't working. And the neurologist somewhat dismissed, it's actually vitamin B6, and somewhat dismissed, well, we'll try that if nothing else works. Well, eight weeks later, nothing else had worked. And so we tried the B6 and within three days, her seizures were gone. Wow. So, and it's not a, I mean, this is an actual in the literature for some reason, infantile spasms can respond to vitamin B6. Hmm. They don't know if it's genetic, metabolic, what it might be in her case, but 
Unfortunately, gone too long. They've seen that with infantile spasms, if you can get them controlled within three weeks, you have a better developmental outcome, typically. Okay. But if not, then you're looking at a fairly significant developmental disability. So she does have an intellectual yes. disability as well? Yes. Was that caused by the seizures, do they think? Or is it just part and parcel with the... Part and parcel. They don't okay. know. It's kind of chicken and egg. Yeah. So. Okay. Tell me what it was like as she was growing up, because she's now how old again? 20, almost 21. She's 21 years old. What was it like having her in, at home? Eric? The first two or three years, it was, I think, a very similar experience to other parents that we had that were friends of ours that had a daughter about the same age. I mean, with some obvious differences. Ellie was nonverbal. She didn't have the skill acquisition, but she toddled around and they chased each other and had a good time. But, you know, the older that she became, the more distant she became from her peers and from our friend's daughter and they were a huge source of support our friends but it was also a daily reminder of the different road that we were on so it was very challenging we had lots and lots of therapies we got her right into occupational therapy speech therapy of course lots of medical appointments metabolic studies we were doing stuff at UCLA and USC Children's Hospital all the time, it seemed like. So our lives were very full of just the logistics and the care of Ellie. So Christy, you had to become a big advocate for your daughter. You likely ended up knowing more about the condition than the doctors that were treating her because of the research that you had done. Why don't you tell me about some of the things that you have had to do as a parent to advocate for the best care for your daughter? Well, research, research, research. I mean, thankfully, even though it was almost 21 years ago, I had fairly good internet access. And I was talking to another parent at now. I would say get into the services system as soon as possible. Because Ellie had a diagnosis that was so clearly associated with developmental disability, the hospital got us right into developmental disability services down, we were in California at the time. So that set us on the road of having the necessary therapy, twice a week speech and OT and PT. But, you know, I always felt like I have to be Ellie's voice. I have to be her advocate. We know she wants to be happy. She's delightful and loves to laugh and loves to be active. And she deserves a life and a life that's not just existing, but really thriving. <laughs> so a lot of different advocacy, medically speaking, but also of course in school settings. I think our first IEP was when she was three. Right. Much earlier than a lot of parents start that process, but it's because you were particularly on top of getting her into not just services, but the school system where they could then pay for a private placement, which was pretty amazing for the time. And you've taken her out of state for different treatments right. and yes. programs. And how right. many times have you done that? Well, she was out at Kenny Krieger Institute's inpatient neurobehavioral unit, two different admissions. It's part of Johns Hopkins. Her first time there, she was there for five months second time was seven months. And it's a unit that focuses mainly on children who have autism, who have what they call severe problem behaviors, which is usually aggression and or self-injury. And unfortunately, Ellie developed very severe self-injury when she was 
about nine, would cycle in and out of it, but at age 11, cycled in and never came out. But she wouldn't be considered on the autism spectrum. She is, she she is, is on the autism she spectrum. She is also on the autism spectrum. Okay. That's a diagnosis we got later. Okay. And it actually was a very helpful diagnosis because it helped us understand her communication and that pictures might be a good way to communicate for her and that it being the case. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so, do you have other children? I'm just, I didn't ask. Yes, we do. Okay. What has been the hardest things that you have had to deal with, Christy? Well, it's certainly horrible to see your child self-injure. Mm -hmm. There's something uniquely devastating, I think, about seeing your child self-injure and seeing that she doesn't want to do it, but she can't help herself and she needs help. So that's very difficult. I mean, I think if self-injury wasn't in the equation, it would be a very different experience, but that has placed a layer that is just, you don't want that for your child. You don't want to accept that that's, you know, what some people were saying, well, she's maybe just going to have that self-injury the rest of her life. And it's like, no, I'm not going to accept that. <laughs> I'm going to keep pursuing treatment for her. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, what's been the hardest things for you? I would have to agree with that. The self-injury, you know, we kind of gone through the whole grief process of just the initial diagnosis and coming to terms with a child who was going to have an intellectual disability and nonverbal, and, and we moved through that, and that was okay. But then the self-injury came along, and it was almost like getting a whole new double whammy. Yeah, it was a very difficult thing to see. Now it kind of happened gradually, cycled in, cycled out. So we thought, oh, that's horrible, but it seems to have cleared up. But then when she cycled in, I mean, that became all-consuming more so than what we thought we were already all consumed by, which was the first eight years of her life. That was big. I think for me personally, the most difficult thing has been all of the advocacy, the difficulties with state agencies, with various people and committees and that we've had to work with, sometimes work against, unfortunately, to try and get Ellie's needs met. And that's very stressful for me personally. Sure. You placed her outside the home. Christy, do you want to tell about that, how old she was and what right. your thought processes were when you did that? Well, we never, ever imagined placing our daughter outside the home. But when she was 11 and cycled into a very severe self-injurious behavior cycle, she needed somebody with her at her side during all waking hours to prevent her from hurting herself too much. And at the time, Oregon literally did not have the funding to have in-home supports at that level. So we didn't really have a choice but to place her in a group home because otherwise she was at risk. So in some ways that made it easier. This was a clear decision that was in her best interest, but it was horrible why 11 years old, having your child move outside your home. But she needed it. Sure. So with your other children, what was her impact on them? Well, we have one son who's five years younger, and so all his life, this is what he's known, mm -hmm. is what his sister is like. I've been very cautious from the beginning of not wanting him to feel like he's responsible for taking care of her, for him to be as much of his own person and child that he can be. I became aware of sibling workshops, sib shops they have, and just aware of the 
psychological effects of having a sibling that has such demanding needs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to say, he has been very impacted by it. And we've done our best to let him have a normal life, but that's often meant sending him away to do fun things with family while we stay mm-hmm. with our daughter. Mm. It's difficult, but at the same time, he has great care and concern for people with disabilities in the community and has learned a lot. What has been her impact on your extended family and friends? I would say we lived in California until she was about five. We had lots of immediate family down there and she was part of the family and we had aunts and uncles that they knew her well enough to take care of her. So we did get a break every once in a while, a few weekends away here and there. And then we came up to Oregon and I have family here as well, but that's when things started getting more challenging. And so I think it was hard, but we had extended family that they didn't know how to be family. I mean, we did our best, but her care was so involved at some point that we felt like we were the only ones who could really take care of her. And so I think a barrier almost went up that kept them out. Mm. And they would see us and they would see how busy we were and how involved we were. And, and we'd get a lot of sympathy and you know a lot of help in other ways, but that didn't turn into them being intimately involved in her life. Yeah. Well, I think anytime there's particularly challenging behaviors with the self-injury, it's scary. It's scary to see it. Sure. And so if you don't feel equipped, it can be very scary and just too much. So we don't expect family to get in there and take care of her. Although there have been some family members who have actually gone into the profession and are working with individuals with developmental disabilities. Mm -hmm. And I think their exposure to Ellie helped them know doesn't have to be scary, actually can be quite delightful. Sure. (laughs) And so, I mean, that's happened too. Sure. Well, and you've got a perfect segue. Uh, We talked about the challenges. Now tell me about the joys. I'm probably gonna get teary, but I mean, Ellie is, pure happiness. She wants to be happy. And so that drives me again to get services in place for her that allow her to be her happy self. But there's no purer joy than when Ellie's happy. And that's just an amazing healing blessing that you just don't get from other experiences. There's just something about it. Eric, what are some of your joys? Yeah, I would say Ellie is Ellie, and there is no artifice, there's no manipulation. When she's happy, it's 100%. And if somebody is able to experience her and be on her level, it's amazingly rewarding and heart-filling. And most of the caregivers that we've had over the years who've gotten to know her, they inevitably love her. And, And there's been the odd staff that hasn't been able to do that, but uh, more often than not, she fills their heart. And we have people who, to this day, cared for her when she was four, five, six, and they want to keep in touch and want to see pictures and want to see how she's doing. So you've had quite a journey. You got a diagnosis early on, a catastrophic diagnosis, and then later the diagnosis of autism or on the autism spectrum. You've had a lot on your plate in terms of advocacy, and, and you placed her in programs when she was 11 to protect herself from injury. There may be another parent out there that's going through the same thing now right. that you went through a decade ago with your daughter. What advice would you give them? Reach out. 
In our daughter's case, I mean, she has a relatively rare and complicated form of self-injury. And we tried everything. Is she not feeling well? Is she got something that she's struggling with? Full medical workups and tried everything and just weren't getting anywhere. And we're told, well, you may just have to let herself injure and she'll eventually figure out how to stop. And I just felt like, no, I don't think that's the case. Plus I can't watch my daughter hurt herself so severely. So calling and trying everything, reaching out to professionals. Thankfully with the internet, you can find what you need with parents, I think. And it's easy to let yourself be isolated. Um, because it's just all-consuming to take care of your child. But one step in front of another, don't take on too much <laughs> at a time, but reach out to parents. Eric, what would your advice be? It is easily isolating or easy to be isolated. That's, in fact, you get so involved and wrapped up in the care that it just feels like nobody else can do this. And we've had interactions with other parents who we can see that that's the case. We've been there ourselves. We were almost forced to let go of that 10 years ago when we had to have her placed. Try to break out of that and realize that there are people around who want to help, but they're gonna need to know how they can help. You're gonna need to educate them and express the ways that they can help the child or you. I mean, there's a lot of times I needed support and I didn't know how to ask for it. And I think I would be a lot better now about reaching out to friends saying, let's go do something. And even if it's just for a couple hours. Sure. Anything you want to say otherwise that I haven't asked? <laughs> if we had to face this again, or we met parents that were in our exact same shoes. Well, first of all, I mean, I would want to come alongside them and do everything that we could help them. But the big thing is not just dealing with the diagnosis and everything that's going on, but the services and the advocacy. And unfortunately, a lot of people just aren't equipped. I mean, that's some pretty unique tools to have in your tool belt to know how to do that. And we're lucky Christy has been amazing at that. And that's kind of in her wheelhouse to do that. You've testified in front of Senate committees. And so not just advocacy for Ellie, but for the whole autism community and the kids that have self-injury. I don't know. It's No, it's great. Thanks for listening to this episode. Orange Socks is an initiative of Rise Incorporated, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting and advocating for people with disabilities. Follow Orange Socks on Facebook and Instagram and visit our website, orangesocks.org, for more stories and to find national and local resources to help parents of children with disabilities.